Hello everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Today I want to tell you part one of the fairy tale Iron John. That was collected by the Grimm's brothers, and their version is titled Iron Hans. But Iron John was made famous in the early 1990s by Robert Bly. He published a book by that title that was a cornerstone of the men's movement of the late 80s and early 90s. The men's movement involved Michael Mead and James Hillman and others to varying degrees, and it was an attempt to address the wounds that men suffer in patriarchy. Now, at the time, I found that a bit off-putting, and honestly, there's a part of me that still does. The idea that um, we should pay particular attention to the suffering of men, given what happens to women as a woman, uh, seems like a mix in priorities. But the fact is patriarchy does cripple men. We're seeing evidence of this all around us. And so I'm compelled to revisit this story and the themes it contains about the masculine. Here in the United States and around the world, but especially here in the United States, we're seeing the implications and the consequences of crippled and wounded and undeveloped men. The immaturity, the fear, and the brutality that is driving our politics right now. And so I think that men like Bly, who gravitated towards this story, and the notion of the wild man that is the heart of the fairy tale were onto something. Now, Bly wrote an entire book about this fairy tale. I'm going to devote two programs to it. As I said, this is part one. Because I want to explore this with you as a matter of importance to all of us. And of course, we're going to be doing this or holding this on multiple levels at the outer level, which I already alluded to, as men and women in societies, we have to concern ourselves with the wounds of others. And that concern may start from a place of (laughs) self-protection, something I'm feeling these days. But ideally, that becomes compassion, compassion and empathy. This is the spiritual and psychological task in front of us. And it leads to an understanding of the inner work where we find our own wounding and we find the place of commonality with those who seem so different, seem even to be doing us harm. And in focusing on our own psychology and moving then beyond that, we are taking responsibility for consciously integrating more and more aspects of our humanity and its shadow. 
we all have a wild man and a wild woman as part of our psychic makeup. I mean, these are archetypes, they're forms and names that we give to patterns and dynamics that are part of being human. The differences arise, the differences in the wounds and tasks and the responsibilities that we have in expressing or bearing these forces are a matter of gender. The cultural man and woman, the cultural male and female, the cultural notion of masculine and feminine come in. And we're seeing today just how flexible and changeable these notions of gender are. So as we go through this story, I'm going to be using, for lack of any other construct, notions and words of masculine and feminine. But underneath it all, we're talking about the human, the human as a natural being and the human in communities and societies. So let's move on to the story. And as always, I invite you to relax and listen and just let yourself pay attention. I want to suggest that you let the images evoked by this story really take shape in your mind's eye. Part of the power of the story is the power of the images. What we see and how we feel in their presence is a response deeper than the words we find to describe the experience. And this response to image is a way that stories can work on us and soften us, whether or not we are consciously thinking about them all the time. So here is part one of Iron John or Iron Hans, if you look for it in the Grimm Brothers. Once upon a time, there was a king who had a great forest near his castle that was full of all kinds of wild animals. One day, he sent one of his huntsmen out to shoot a deer, but the huntsman didn't come back. Hmm, maybe he's had an accident, said the king, and so the following day, he sent two other huntsmen out to search for him. But then they didn't return either. So on the third day, the king summoned up all of his huntsmen and said, I want you all to go and search the whole forest and don't come back here until you have found all three of the missing men. But none of those huntsmen came home and neither did any of their dogs. None of the hunting dogs and none of the men were ever seen again. From that time on, no one dared to go into the woods. And there was a deep quiet that hung over them. All that anyone ever saw was the occasional hawk or eagle flying over the treetops. This condition lasted for a number of years. Nobody went into the woods, and that was the end of it, until a stranger, an unknown huntsman, came to the court of the king seeking a position. Well, I don't really have much of a need for 
Huntsman anymore, said the king. Um, we don't do a lot of hunting around here anymore. But the huntsman volunteered to go into the dangerous woods. Well, I don't know if I, if I really want to let you do that, the king said. It's haunted in there. And frankly, I'm afraid that you won't do any better than any of the others. That if you go in there, you will never come out again. Sire, the huntsman said, I will proceed at my own risk. I know nothing of fear. And so he picked up his weapons and he called his dog and they went forth into the woods. They hadn't been walking for very long when the dog picked up a scent and wanted to follow it. But as soon as the dog started tracking, he came to the edge of a deep pool. When the dog stopped at the edge of the pool, a naked arm reached up out of the water, grabbed the dog, and pulled it under. Well, the huntsman saw that, (laughs) and he went back to the castle and got three men. Three men and some buckets. And they went back to the pool and bailed out all of the water. When they got to the bottom of the pool, they found a wild man lying there. His body was brown like rusty iron, and his hair was so long that it hung over his face and down to his knees. The huntsman and his helpers bound the wild man up with cords and led him away to the castle. Everyone in the kingdom was astonished at the sight of this wild man. They had no idea that such a thing existed. And the king had him put in an iron cage in his courtyard. Then he forbid everyone on pain of death to open the cage door. When that door was locked, he gave the key to the queen to safeguard. And now that the wild man was locked up, everyone could once again go safely into the woods. Now, as it was, the king had a son who was eight years old. And this prince had a favorite toy, a golden ball. And one day, when he was playing out in the courtyard, his ball rolled into the wild man's cage. The boy ran up to the cage and said, Give me my ball. Not until you have opened the door for me, answered the wild man. Oh no, said the boy, I I won't do that. The king has forbidden it. And he ran away. The prince really wanted his ball back, and so the next day he came again to the cage and demanded that the wild man return the ball. And again the wild man said, Open my door. But the boy wouldn't do it. 
On the third day, the boy went out to the courtyard in the cage once again. The king, his father, had gone out hunting. And so this time the boy said to the wild man, Look, even if I wanted to, I couldn't open your door. I don't have the key. The wild man said, The key is under your mother's pillow. You can get it there. The boy really wanted to have his ball back. And so, impulsively, he ran to his mother's room, reached under the pillow, and got the key. When he got back to the cage, he opened the door with a certain amount of difficulty and actually pinched his finger. And when the door was open, the wild man stepped out, gave him his golden ball, and hurried away. Now the boy became afraid. He realized that when the king came back, the cage was going to be empty. And so he called after the wild man. Oh, wild man, don't go away. You can't go away or I will get a beating. And the wild man turned around and came back, picked the boy up, set him on his shoulders, and ran off into the woods. When the king came home, he noticed the empty cage and asked the queen how that had happened. Well, she didn't know anything about it. And when she went to go and look for the key, she found that it was gone. It was no longer in her hiding place under the pillow. She called the boy, but no one answered. The king sent people out to look for his son in the field, but they didn't find him. And the king could easily guess what had happened. And a great sorrow came over the royal court. In the meantime, when the wild man had once more reached the dark, dark woods, he set the boy down and said to him, you're never going to see your father and mother again. But I will keep you with me because you've set me free and I have compassion for you. If you do what I tell you, everything will go well for you. I have treasures and gold more than anyone in the world. He made a bed of moss for the boy who laid down and fell immediately asleep. And then the next morning, the wild man took the boy to a spring. Look, he said, this golden spring is as bright and clear as crystal. You shall sit here beside it and watch carefully. Make sure that nothing falls into it. Otherwise, the water will be polluted. I will come and visit you every evening to see if you have obeyed my order. The boy sat down at the edge of the spring, and the wild man went away. The boy watched the water, and he saw how sometimes a golden fish or a golden snake appeared from within. 
and he was very careful to make sure that nothing fell into the water. And he sat there for a while, and the longer he sat there, the more he felt the pain from that pinched finger. His finger hurt him so fiercely that impulsively he plunged it into the water. Well, he quickly pulled it back out again, but saw that his finger was completely covered with gold. However hard he tried to wipe the gold off, it was to no avail. That evening, Iron John came back. He looked at the boy and said, Well, what has happened here at the spring? Oh, nothing, nothing, said the boy. He held his finger behind his back so the man wouldn't be able to see it. But the man said, You have dipped your finger into the water. This time, I'm going to let it go. But be careful that you do not let anything else fall in. Very early the next morning, the boy was already sitting at his post by the spring, keeping watch. His finger hurt him again, and he rubbed it across his forehead. And unfortunately, a hair fell down into the spring. He quickly pulled it out, but it was already completely covered with gold. Iron John came and already knew what had happened. You let a hair fall into the spring, he said. Now, I will overlook this once more, but if it happens a third time, then this spring is going to be polluted, and you will no longer be able to stay here with me. On the third day, the boy sat by the spring. He was resolute. He was determined. He did not move his painful finger no matter how much it hurt. But time passed rather slowly sitting there by himself, and so he leaned over the water and looked at his reflection. He looked at the reflection of his face in the water, and while he was doing this, he bent down lower and lower. He wanted to look straight into his own eyes, and his long hair fell down from his shoulders into the water. He quickly straightened himself up, but all of the hair on his head was covered with gold, and it glistened, glistened like the sun. Well, now the poor boy was totally frightened. (laughs) How was he going to hide this from the wild man? He took out his handkerchief and he tied it around his head, so that the man wouldn't be able to see his hair. But when Iron John came, he already knew everything, and he said, untie the handkerchief. The boy's golden hair streamed forth, and there was no excuse that the boy could offer. Well, said Iron John, You've failed the test, and so you cannot stay here any longer. You're going to have to go out into the world, and there you will learn about poverty. But because you're not bad-hearted, and because I do mean well by you, 
I am going to grant you one thing. If you are ever in need, go into the woods and cry out, Iron John, and I will come and help you. My power is very great, greater than you think, and I have more than enough gold and silver. Well, that's where we're going to stop for today. And let's consider a few things that have happened so far in the story. We're going to be kind of moving between and holding these different levels. And so you can look at all of this from the perspective of our culture and society. You can look at it from the perspective of the dynamics between individual gendered men and women. And you can consider this as a description of inner dynamics of your own psyche. So we've got the king. The king is in charge. The king is the established order. And we notice that he doesn't go out into the woods himself. I mean, essentially, he just tells people to stay away after a lot of other lives have been sacrificed. And I find it interesting that the use of the word haunted, you know, you have this sense that there's the ghost of something unclaimed that's lurking on the edges, that is, in the dark wood, outside of, and beyond the reach of, the civilized, the city. It takes someone, a stranger, someone who also lives outside the kingdom, maybe in the woods, this huntsman, to change the situation. Someone who has a greater familiarity and significantly less fear comes along and retrieves the wild man. And this wild man is at the bottom of the pool of water. We're going to come back to that in a second. Sticking with the king, what leads the king to cage the wild man? Fascination. The people were astonished that such a man existed. He was a mystery. And then the king turns the key over to the queen. He doesn't even take charge of it. He makes a proclamation. But he doesn't keep the key. Now, the loss of the golden ball, that might sound familiar to you. And I see some parallels here with another fairy tale, the frog prince. In the Frog Prince, we have a princess who has a beloved toy, a golden ball, rolls into a well, into the water, into the realm of an ugly, scary helper who insists that a deal be made. So we had the frog and we have the wild man. And there's something very similar about the two of them. Although the wild man's in his cage at that point, he too was under the water. In both instances, we have a creature who can survive on land and in the watery depths, that is, in the unconscious. So, in this golden ball, we see something, something very valuable, has been handed over to a living presence in the unconscious. In both stories, it's the child who has the ball, And the child loses it. And on one level, the loss of the ball is an accident. But on another level, it's necessary. A move has to be made. 
And the, the psyche has to develop the loss of the ball and then breaking the rule is part of that, transgressing against the inherited order. In the case of the frog prince, the, the princess doesn't want to keep the promise. She runs off without the frog. Here we have the boy goes and steals the key. And you see, not everyone does this, though, do they? Some people don't ever color outside of the lines. But it's necessary for the next thing to happen. Now, I want to say something about the queen and the queen and, and the key under the pillow. There's some, I have some thoughts about her role and the suggestion that the young boy needs to mature or change. It's the boy who needs to change. His mother, who's also the queen, the feminine in the order, has the key. And this reminds me of another story with some parallels. The Sumerian myth of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Now in that myth, we have Gilgamesh. He's physically grown and he is a king. But he's so one-sided that he wreaks havoc. He uses his power and authority and strength to terrorize his subjects rather than to be a good king and protect them. And the people pray to the gods to save them from this destructive, brutal, immature king. And the gods make him a counterpart, a wild man named Enkidu. Enkidu is also extremely hairy, hair symbolically, archetypally connected to our natural animal vitality and strength. And Enkidu is also living out in nature. And it's interesting in that story, and I think there may be something important for Iron John here too, that the civilizing influence, the balancer, what is needed for maturity is wildness. You know, there's a distinction between the natural, embodied, intuitive, instinctual, and the savage, brutal, and carelessly violent. In that distinction here, I think we're we're seeing what's been called warrior energy, real warrior energy. Warrior energy, which involves principle and character, an economy of effort combined with strength and skill. I think of the difference between a boy, say, with the BB gun, who's out killing birds simply because he can, and a hunter who kills a deer so that his family can eat, says a prayer over the animal for the animal's spirit and then uses every part of the animal. Something paradoxically civilizing or necessary to the civilized maturity, the development of a true warrior uh, in this natural, instinctive masculine. Now, in the story of Gilgamesh, it's a temple harlot. It's a woman who is in contact with the sacred and natural, instinctive aspects of her power who brings Enkidu into the realm of Gilgamesh into society, into Gilgamesh's city. And here we see this queen. Now, the queen belongs to the king. She is not 
the same as a temple harlot. She's not the feminine in touch with the natural, but she is the feminine that we have in this story. And she puts the key under her pillow, the place where she makes love and where she dreams. Dreams of the wild man and the wild woman, perhaps. (laughs) One last note on the story we see that the boy fails the test of the spring. We are always tested, and often we fail, and that failure is part of the process. We also see that the parts, the things that were dropped in, and the, the, the parts of the boy now, his hair, they turn to gold, which seems especially significant, don't you think, given the loss of his golden ball? He had a golden ball, and now he has golden hair. And it's connected to the wound. He has a wound. He hurts his finger. The wound when he frees the wild man, Iron John. And then there's the why and how he fails the test of guarding the spring and the resulting golden hair. Do you think it's a coincidence that the distinguishing characteristic of Iron John is his long, long hair? And now this boy, who's presumably ordinary in appearance otherwise, has such distinctive hair. We're going to pick up the story and some of these questions in part two. But I want to close today with this poem called Advice by the poet Bill Holm, which I feel somehow pulls together the threads from my opening commentary. It goes like this. Someone dancing inside us learned only a few steps. The do your work in 4-4 time. The what do you expect waltz. He hasn't noticed yet the woman standing away from the lamp. The one with the black eyes who knows the rumba. And strange steps in jumpy rhythms from the mountains of Bulgaria. If they dance together, something unexpected will happen. And if they don't, the next world will be a lot like this one. That's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. And if you're finding something of value here in Myth in the Mojave, please join the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs that are archived there and free downloads of everything new I'm creating. You're also playing an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll tune in next time for part two of Iron John. And until then, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive.